0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Katie Coldiron and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the great pleasure today to be interviewing the authors of The Dissidents of Reynaldo Arenas. Queering Literature, Politics, and the Activist Curriculum, released in 2022 from the University Press of Florida. The three authors of this work that I have here today are Sandro Bajos, who is assistant professor in the Curriculum, Instruction, and Teacher Education Program at Michigan State University, and also the author of Competing Truths in Latin American Literature, Narrating Otherness and Marginality. Rafael Casio, the Charles A. Dana Professor of Spanish at Agnes Scott College, who's the author of two additional books on Reynaldo Arenas, which are Reynaldo Arenas, Cuba's Political and Sexual Outlaw, and The Making of a Gay Activist. And finally, the third author um, here today on the podcast with us is Angela L. Willis, who is the professor of Hispanic Studies and Latin American Studies at Davidson College. She is also the author of several studies on queer Cuban writers and on the picturesque novel. So welcome to the podcast today, Sandro, Rafael, and Angela. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. So just to start out, um, usually I like to begin asking... um, how this project came to be. So, where there are three of you, um, I really would like to hear from each of you of how each of you personally became involved with this project.
0: Well, that's that's an interesting question, and I will take charge of it because um, I have been working with Reynaldo for several several years now, and um, I felt that there was something left unsaid. And I thought that there was going to be another book, but I did not want to write it by myself. So I reached out to two of my best friends, uh, Angie and um, Sandro, and we came up with this idea of doing a multi um, disciplinary book that looks at Renaldo from various um, angles, um, from the literary perspective. Um, angle, from the political angle. And also, we wanted to look at Renaldo as a way to learn how to do queer activism. And that's where Sandro comes. Um, we wanted to highlight that Reynaldo, from day one, was a teacher. And um, the three of us learned so many things um, from him in so many different ways.
1: Thank you so much for that. So um, I'd like to hear from uh, you, Angela, as well. What kind of motivated you after being asked by Rafael to participate to, to follow through with this project?
2: Yeah, so it was it was an incredible honor to be invited by this eminent Iranian scholar to participate in a collaborative way on the project. Um, for us, uh, Rafael has been a mentor for both me and Sandro. I like to share that I met him truly at one of my first academic conferences ever. And uh, he came up, introduced himself and started telling me about other sources. And this was back in the day before we also readily used um, electronic sources. Um, he told me about some things I should read. And lo and behold, a week later they were in my mailbox. And uh, that is the, the kind of mentor that he has been to me for the last 20 years plus. So when he um, I reached out and extended the invitation It was a wonderful opportunity and I did not know Sandro and we became fast friends as well. And I would also like to share that during the height of the COVID quarantine, this project was an intellectual lifeline that brought us together. We went from barely uh, using Skype to being Zoom experts and um we had met in person only once, the three of us in March of 2020, the week, the exact week everything shut down. And then uh, we had a recent reunion in Atlanta, which was really exciting. So I'll let Sandro tell you more about the process, but it, it was really a truly a collaborative experience.
3: same Samesies for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for me, of course, it, it's very interesting to know that it all goes back to to, to Rafa. And for the simple reason that his work in in in, in Reynaldo Arenas was actually part of my dissertation, and I think I mentioned somewhere it, it's uh, it's and we met, I mean I think a decade later after I had defended and uh, my dissertation, and it was during a Posse Foundation, which is a group that um, you know mentors and sort of. Uh, uh receives a sort of first generation college students mostly um and we were both participating on the training and I saw his name and I says like and then I asked are you the Rafael Ocasio who writes okay you were on my dissertation you know and I think he might have felt legendary by then which it means he felt very old <laughs> <laughs> but it's true um it's a work of mentorship and it's very interesting how coming back to arenas is also making you think about who are your mentors who are your teachers and, you know, people that you don't even meet, you know, and who later become your teachers, you know. So I think that this is my bit to to to, to sort of see how this project came about. I think it came about uh, foremost because of Rafa's uh, incredible uh, invitation and also the open mindedness and open heartedness. Uh, with which, uh, you know, we all have different, I think I I locate uh, Rafa's work very much into the historiographic level, you know, and you can sense that thread in the book. Uh, Angela is very much as a literary critic and a literary uh, scholar in that sense. And me, I come from education and, you know, most different, most uh, more so in public pedagogy, which is sort of this theoretical concept we use to focus on forms, sites of education that occur beyond schooling. So literary spaces, activist spaces are things that interest me very much. So... And, and it's very interesting how people from sort of different walks of life and different interests always find, you know, their mentors, not necessarily within the same discipline, but, you know, across disciplines. So, yeah.
1: Thank you so much for that from all three of you. And I really do like um, within this book and um, your... Um... At the very beginning, you talk about your personal relationships with um, the work of Reynaldo Arenas, and then in your case, Rafael, Reynaldo Arenas, the person. Um, So moving on, um, obviously... Reynaldo Arenas is a hugely important figure for anyone trying to understand revolutionary Cuba or even the Cuban exile. Um, But obviously there might be those listening to this podcast that don't know who Reynaldo Arenas is. So my first question uh, for one of you is who was Reynaldo Arenas?
0: Well, in a nutshell, it will be very difficult to define who Reynaldo Arenas is, was and will be. So, let's start with the was. I I will describe Reynaldo as among the first um, Latin American writers who um, in the 1960s was developing what we would call later queer literature. Um, His his development as a a writer goes hand in hand with his development as a queer um, individual. And um, the literature for the 1960s was uh, was very daring um, within the Latin American um, literary f- frame. Um, he was also um, an activist, and uh, you mentioned the Cuban Revolution, so we cannot separate the two of them. Reynaldo Arenas owes a lot to the Cuban Revolution in the sense that he uh, became a writer because of several projects that the revolution had placed um had put in place for the development of um um liter- li- literature um however um the revolution was not very much into queer um activism and that's where reinaldo breaks away from the from the Kuhn revolution so what will reinaldo arenas be um when we will um write the history of the Cuban Revolution. I don't know when would that be. Um, Would it be after the fall of communism in Cuba? But whenever um, that day will be, Reina Lorenas will... will, should be placed as among the most um, important um, writers and activists that um, come from this um, background, a political um, Um, movement that changed the history of um, Cuba, and um, we can also say that it changed the history of Latin America as a whole, and including the, the United States.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Rafael. I, I think it's really interesting too that you point out um, kind of what Reynado Arenas will be because you do at the very end of the book point out that Reynado Arenas is not a figure whose work is openly read in Cuba. It is in official spaces prohibited. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see when and if um, communi- the communist system does fall in Cuba, um, You know, will he be reintroduced or, or not? So, Kind of moving into the, the meat of the book, uh, my next question is focused on the first chapter, which largely addresses Arenas's political activism from exile through sharing his experiences as, you know, testimonial within revolutionary Cuba, which you classify as public pedagogy. Could one of you elaborate a bit more on this and specifically how it is reflected in his writing?
3: Ooh, I love this question. Looks like you no, know, it looks like one of those sounds like one of those que- uh, doctoral exam questions, you know. <laughs> uh, kudos, you know. I'll take that one then. Um, uh, I th- I think that when when we we, we conventionally thinking think about uh, a pedagogy, we often we are taught to think of pedagogy as something that happens inside classroom walls right, and done by people who are institutionally positioned as teachers, you know, within the structures of school. And that is one way of looking at it. Um, because my work comes from public pedagogy, you know, I, and I think it's something that we discussed a lot, you know, I tend to see literature as a site of education as well. So in this focus on forms and process of learning that happens outside not necessarily within schools but outside schooling and have practices um i kind of came to to to, to this idea look i see him as a public pedagogue in the sense as this is a guy that is teaching sort of counter histories you know that do not accommodate easily to either the united states version of what the cuban revolution should mean nor what the Cubans themselves wanted um, uh, the Cuban Revolution to be, uh, you know, these there's the, these demands on uniformity, uh, easy answers, lack of poetry, you know, has the, the favored realist uh, um, sort of aesthetics for 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 uh, of, of the Cuban regime. And at the same time, the United States wanted this sort of idealized version of the world romanticized even that he was not able to provide. He was somebody who was teaching very much how complicated it was to live in the midst of history and how language, realist language, was limited in telling folks about the quote unquote reality, the lived experience of, of that reality. So in that sense, he was sort of this pedagogue, you know, this teacher that was sort of introducing to audiences, you know, uh, the, 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 these are alternative views of what is what does it what does it mean to live in the ambiguities of historical processes to be caught between these two oppositional forces that are much more complicated much more complex than one would think, and uh, I had learned from another uh, teacher Rafa uh, the sort of like th- these sort of tensions, and so I wanted to pick up and sort of like run and propose. Uh, perhaps this focus on these resistant aspects of 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 his, of his 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 book writing as a form of public pedagogy mindful that every for us at least uh, you know in public pedagogy in general uh, pedagogy every communicative act is a pedagogical act every act that we do towards communicating something is teaching somebody about uh, something about us or about the world that is around us so that's kind of like the, the focus that I was trying to bring in and I hope I answered the question you know it's sort of like multiplying in many ways the meaning of what the teacher is as a figure
1: yes you very much did answer my question Sandro thank you so much um, and I do really like that you point out how Renato Arenas didn't really fit in any real, you know, strict paradigm of, you know, Cold War US versus Cuba, I think more than anything he advocated, you know, his personal freedom to not only live outside of the communist system, but also to be able to express his gender and sexuality in the way that he um, so desired and felt. So, moving on to the second chapter, um which focuses largely on Arenas's identity as a marialito, which is means someone who came um, to left Cuba during the 1980 Mariel Boatlift um, and came to Florida. And he was also a Marielito who was openly gay at that. So could one of you tell uh, me a bit about how Arenas navigated these identities once in exile and also about his participation in the documentary film Conducta Impropia?
0: The, the importance of uh, Reynaldo Arenas coming through the Mariel Boatlift in 1980 is is huge um reinaldo at the time had developed a huge um um name in europe mainly in france where um not only he had won literary prizes for his um novels translated into um french but um he was also he was also on his way to become the activist that we know today. For the most part, those people who know about Reynaldo will remember his last 10 years of the United States. Um, He came, as I said, in 1980, and he died in 1990. What's important of this time period is that Reynaldo, once he arrived in the United States, he he remained... by choice, a Marielito. Reina Lorenas, with the reputation, with the the literary reputation that he had, he could have very well um, ignored that um, he came through this um, boat lift. The boat lift was very important, um, and um, many, many political activists will say that um, President Carter lost the elections in part because of... uh, He's allowing the um, boat lift to take place. Over 150,000 Cubans came to the United States in a matter of maybe three, four months. Among them, and this is the controversial part, among them were um, criminals or um, people with criminal records. They were petty Um criminal records, and Reynaldo Arenas had um, also a criminal record, and homosexuals. And this was the first time that the United States legally, diplomatically, didn't know how to handle the fact that they were among um, those people, um, homosexuals. Um, and again, Reynaldo um, decided to to remain throughout his um 10 years in the United States, a Marielito. Um, I always have said that um, Reynaldo knew that his um, staying as a Marielito would damage his reputation. I think that's one of the reasons why not many more people know about Reynaldo or take him as as someone um, with a minor stature than other. Cuban writers who um, came um, to the United States or um, to Europe at various different time periods. He was also, as you mentioned, he was also involved in conducta impropia. Often when um, critics look at the development of the Cuban Revolution in relation to their acceptance or not of homosexuality, that will point to a period in which um, there were um, a series of um, um, police raids that led to the um, to the um, that took people to um, war camps, and that's what conducta impropia is looking into. Um, the documentary is still um, very well um, examined as an example of the Cuban Revolution ways in which. Um, um, homosexuals were not immediately accepted as um, proper citizens, and I would—I think Angie will later um, talk a little bit more about conducta propia because uh, the director and Reynaldo had a very close relationship.
1: Most definitely, Angie, um, if you'd like to go ahead and expand on on that a little bit, because I know in the text um, you all mentioned that uh, Renaldo was a really key part of this documentary even coming to be but much less you know him being in the film himself
2: sure um, i was going to talk a little bit later about the relationship um, of what we refer to in the book as a group of enfants terribles uh, which was comprised of spanish writer juan goiti solo nestor almendros um, and arenas amongst others uh, which again, I can elaborate on that a little bit more later, but it was really, really interesting to find out in our arch- archival uh, research at, at Princeton University where Arenas's papers and manuscripts are held, that there is a um, there are letters. There's a letter from Almendros to Arenas, and there is a letter from Goiti Solo to Arenas. Uh, in the book, we discuss a relationship, personal relationships, professional relationships amongst these uh, queer exiled uh, creative um geniuses, right, who were working on the fringes, working on the margins, trying to bring about um, social justice, um, politically, sexually, and otherwise. And this connects again with, uh, as Rafa was, was talking about, with um, the boat, uh, Mardale boat uh, exodus, and um, the Cuba, a lot of the Cubans who came out of Cuba at that time.
1: Thank you so much for that. So moving on to um, the third chapter, which focuses largely on Arenas' attempts to what you will call rewrite Cuban history through the lens of his own experiences, as well as, in a sense, to write that history into how he thought it should have played out.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Could one of you tell us a bit more about this phenomenon?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Katie. I'll take that one too. That's a topic that really touches me and runs throughout my my research. Um, Something that's really amazing about Arenas is that his stories are both universal. They speak to uh, so many different parts of the human experience at the same time that they're very much his own and they're very Cuban. Um, But something that I find over and over in his work is that he had an obvious fascination with uh, rewriting um, existing literary traditions, forms and genres, which is super interesting when we think about how he was such a dissident and such a rebel, but he was, he would use, um, pre-existing forms, uh, to W-R-I-T-E stories at the same thing, at the same time that he was re R-I-G-H-T, uh, rewriting history, <laughs> right? I actually teach a class on that exact uh, topic on rewriting history through rewriting, um, He, for example, takes uh, uh, Latin American stories and queers them, uh, remolding them so that we can find a different perspective, a different story. Um, And for example, his parodic rewriting of the 19th century abolitionist novel, Cecilia Valdez by Cirilo Villaverde, uh, which Arenas retitled as La Loma del Angel, which in fact is the subtitle of Villaverde's masterpiece. He moves the periphery to the center in um, the end of that novel, the slaves, the mulattoes, the secondary characters, like the subtitle, moved to occupy spaces that had been denied to them before. Um, and another example in El Mundo Alucinante, which was probably his most famous novel, smuggled out of Cuba and um, by the Camachos, his patrons, published in 1969, um, he rewrites the story of 18th 19th century 18th 19th century. Mexican independence leader Fray Servando Teresa de Mier's memoirs, uh, who was a dissident fighting against colonial oppression, right? he rewrites the story as his own. He makes it into a multi-perspective text, uh, which at times is autobiographical. Um, And this was the novel that, in large part, got him in trouble with the Cuban uh, regime because he had it published in France, first in French, um, without the the Castro regime's uh, permission. Um, And reading through the lines, through the metaphor, you see that he was speaking out against oppression, authoritarianism, uh, writ large. Um, So again, that's something that he does over and over and over, which is really interesting.
1: Thank you so much. There are a lot more examples, Katie, (laughs) but I want to make sure you get to everybody here. Yeah, thank you so much for that. No, it's really, really a fascinating thing and really kind of challenges, you know, kind of preconceived notions of, of truth and, and history and whatnot. So it's really, it's really fascinating to hear about. So the fourth chapter talks a lot about, you know, hierarchies of information and the melding of past and present in the work of Odenas. So f- I'd love to hear a bit more from one of you about this phenomenon and how it's present in
3: Odenas's literary works. Okay. First of all, these questions are delicious <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like stealing them. And rewarding them and doing my arena's thing on on on, on graduate exams uh, because they are really thoughtful. Um, I'll, I'll I'll take this one uh, rather briefly. It one thing that is fascinating to us and something that I discussed with a uh, you know um, uh, both Rafa and and um, Angie is this problematizing of. The historical nation, you know, is like, what is fiction and what is not is such a cultural historians, I think, would not have a problem with it, right? It's more for this multiplicity of points of views and so forth. But certain segments of the more hardcore social science-y type of thing, show me the evidence, the hard evidence might have a problem with it. And in many ways, I think that these differences are to be lived with. And not necessarily, you know, they are unresolved. We need to learn how to live with, with with this and keep the the conversation going on. But I wanted to sort of like understand. Well, if you understand the life of of, of Reynaldo as a public pedagogue, as a teacher, and here is, the, the, you know, what he's teaching. What about his curriculum, his life, his lived experiences as a curriculum? Uh, what 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 is what it what would it be like to approach it like that? So. For us, it was a matter of delving into, well, what do we understand by curriculum, right? So people say, ah, is the organization of a history and this, uh, of a subject worth knowing. And this is what the Cuban revolution wants you to learn. And this is what uh, the United States wants you to learn about Cuba. And here's Reynaldo telling you, that is totally not reality <laughs> you know and so and yet being so convincing when we know that there's a lot of factual inaccuracies in his narratives even if we take a historical approach and say account, the same account that appears in his autobiography which is a genre that we you know it's problematic in his own terms but you know it's like oh here it is you know I spent three days on the top of a tree whatever four days sleeping on the right hiding from the police you know and other testimonial accounts grounded that it's just like that had never happened. And his uh, propensity to get into trouble with people, you know, he was an acerbic person that exercised his truth, you know, in a very parisiastic sort of way. You know, I am fearless and I'm going to speak my truth. And if you don't like it, too bad. So for in this chapter was to basically thinking of, think about his literature as a curriculum. So what is, and if curriculum is this very complicated idea of what information matters most and why. Curriculum is essentially not necessarily a guarantee that you are going to learn something, but that you're going to be oriented toward things that you may not have been oriented in the past. This matters too. This queerness matters too. This ambiguity matters too. And then it was an issue of, okay, how might we tell this story? And then conversing you know, with my colleagues, we like, well, in curriculum theory, there's this shift that happens in the 1970s, 1975, that curriculum starts to uh, be proposed as coming from the lived experiences of students, right? So what if we use this sort of theoretical, um, sort of a, this uh, idea and use it as a heuristics to read Reynal Larenas as a uh, curriculum? So you know I had been interested in the past uh, in in the past in the work of a educational scholar curriculum scholar William Pinar um who now teaches at the University of British Columbia but has been historic uh, one of the historical sh- figures also a queer author in many ways in the in the in the shifting of 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 um a curriculum to think about, to account for the lived experience of students. And so he devised these four steps, you know, that for us served as a heuristics to analyze Arenas's lived experience curriculum, you know, in a regressive sort of way and how he does that in a progressive, in other words, how he imagines the future. And then there's narratives of the, this future that is always present, right? And even when Arenas writes about futuristic events, like any dystopian, uh author is never really about the future it's about the present that is already here and is just transposed so that's what is the beauty of it and then you know the, how he synthesizes all these things so the four steps the progressive the regressive the synthetic and the analytical served as a heuristic to sort of enter to this understanding of how information is hierarchized right how past and present you know are really about the present modifying the past in many many ways so uh, Renaldo has many studies about the, the the role of memory in his literature La escritura de la memoria is one that comes uh to mind so this sort of allowed us to talk about even his more futuristic um sort of accounts you know fiction uh and in a way that accounts for this importance of the present which reinforces this idea that he had a very what I uh, Discussed with my colleagues as well, this very phenomenological look at the world, where this that there's this beautiful quote that uh, that, that when I needed, they were able. They are very good at locating stuff. Of arenas, I just use Arenas to do my own thing but like they're very good it was like where's that quote It's was like oh it appeared first in this in this it's like a true scholar's i'm 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 a fake one in this group but it, in the, in that sense there's a beautiful quote of arena that talks about like the the image not being the same at noon as it was at, at 2 p.m. or something like that and then i was like oh yeah it appeared here and then then it was reprinted there and i was cited from the reprint and then you know when scholars are true scholars when they kind of know it was first there so i remember being correct in that that sense but this goes to show I think that how we were trying to, what we we're trying to do here is just use this sort of curriculum theory curere idea which just means this reformulation of what a curriculum is, you know moving to curere, which is a more active verb, you know like a horse carriage race um uh, and sort of use this idea this theoretical support as a and pivot to a reading of arenas in a way that makes sense to understand the continuity and the cohesion that his curriculum is about. Because curriculum in many ways is always this attempt at making things cohere for students, you No, know? So I think that uh, basically the spirit of the chapter was that. I hope I was clear because yes. I'm- the- I'm the more complicated of everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh,
1: that was was perfect, Sandro. And I will say, I think in the book that, you know, you have all of this theory um, and especially, you know, obviously that makes sense with your background. I mean, your focus is curriculum instruction and teacher education. So I think one thing that you really do um, both in the book and here in our conversation is make that more digestible. And I think it's, I mean, honestly, as someone who has been in Upper division undergraduate language courses. I think it's, you know, something really valuable for instructors, you know, wanting to teach the works of Arenas. So thank you. And
3: I owe that to my (laughs) call because I'm not digestible at all. Most of (laughs) what what was helpful is that when I got too far, <laughs> they they pulled me back in. <laughs> which
1: was you always need someone to do that. I completely understand. Yeah. Um, so the fifth chapter so brings in this new figure, um, who is a contemporary of Arenas, who um, Angela you already mentioned, who's the Spaniard Juan Goitisolo, who is an author like Arenas, and he is of you know Spanish descent, but. Um, kind of like other cases, you know, obviously, there's lots of movement between Spain and Cuba until, you know, very recently compared to other parts of Latin America, he has, like, ancestors Mm -hmm. that lived in Cuba. So um, my next question for one of you is who was Juan Guitisolo? How is he related to Arenas? Um, Did he know Arenas? And how is his work similar or different to that of Arenas?
2: Thank you. Um, so this was another really exciting research question for us. And thank you so much for all these, these questions, Katie. It's, it's clear to us that you are a fabulous uh, reader, which is really important because Arenas demands that his readers are active. And this was actually something that I had intended to say before. I think that one of the most exciting things about his work is that you cannot read his texts, without wanting to go on some sort of intellectual journey, so thinking again about the notion of being a pedagogue, thinking about his notion, the, the notion of his being a mentor to us, um, his his writing has taken all of us to so many other places, so many other journeys. Uh, as I was mentioning before, you know, nineteenth-century Mexican independence writer. Um, and here we are thinking about a Spanish writer. So some of the first times I was just reading uh, Juan Goytisolo, who was a little bit older than Arenas. He was born in 31, Arenas in 43. I was struck with a lot of the similarities between their style, topics. Um, they both really revel in the taboo, be it sexuality, uh, eschatology, the underbelly of the world, um, being in exile. Uh, Goytisolo self-exiled from Spain under Franco. Um, He was married, but he also had male queer lovers. He was married to a woman. So he would practice a different kind of non-binary sexuality, but they both lived on the edges. Um, They were both very experimental. Um, And again, with the taboo, put it in your face. Um, I found a, a, a common thread of like kind of bathroom obsession um, so just a lot of things in terms of the thematics, but what I really didn't expect to find, postmodern kind of writing as well, but what I did not expect to find were the common or the, the personal connections. And so I mentioned earlier on that in the Princeton Archive, there is a letter from Goiti Solo to Arenas. Um, he's talking about trying to potentially get one of Arenas' short stories, Arturo Las estrella Más Brillante, uh, to Almendros to make a film of it. So there, you see this kind of promotionary, um, I don't know if that's a word, a promotional um, aspect amongst their relationship. Um, and then super interesting, as I mentioned before, we find out that they're they're kind of friends. And when Arenas dies, uh, Goitu Solo writes this beautiful essay as an homage to him and talks about how Arenas was, in fact, a mentor to him, which we found absolutely fascinating. Here we are thinking that the older Goiti Solo is the uh, mentor to Arenas, how he's helping him, trying to uplift him and his efforts to uh, start a writing career outside of Cuba, when, as it turns out, um, 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 I'm sorry, Goitisolo states how Arenas inspired him to not be, in his words, a poser. And there's also this really hilarious um Kind of crude humor that they both use, that the the humorous, uh, uh, scatological humor as a weapon, as an arm. And so there's this this in this essay, which is called "Caído en el Campo de Honor," after Arenas dies, where he talks about how Arenas wasn't one of these queers wearing, you know, fake this and fake that and fake eyelashes. He was, what you see is what you get. He was authentic. He was the real deal. Which has to do again with his activism. He his being in your face as an activist. Um, and then just one more, like kind of textual comparison that I thought was really interesting, and you seem to have, have to noticed as well. Um, Solo, we found out not only were his was his family um, having commun- Cuban connections, past uh, plant had they had a plantation, a sugarcane plantation near San Fuegos, and um, like. Arenas, Goiti Solo rewrites history, his personal history, Spanish history, Cuban history, to R I G H T again, the (laughs) past. And so we have this situation where Goiti Solo finds out that his grandfather had a slave, and the slave had written a very passionate letter, basically asking for better conditions, asking for her freedom. And he puts that letter in his novel. Juan sin tierra, which right, Juan without land, talking again about being an exile, the exile perspective, and um, parodies his own grandparents, uh, having had a, uh, having, having had a plate plantation. So again, as Arenas had as well with Loma del Angel, we see this rewriting of history, looking at the slave perspective. Um, so I thought that that was super interesting as well. I probably have said too much. Okay, there's more to say, but we'll leave there. We'll leave it there. They both had also King Kong in their novels. Let me just say that. Go look for that. (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned the King
1: Kong connection. I was waiting for that. Um, And no, that was was perfect. Thank you so
2: much. so uh, we get to the we the... will have to actually read the text to find out right <laughs> yes okay, definitely bye. we
1: always want to leave a little bit to to go find out later um Suspense. with these podcasts yes so now getting to the end of the book um on the sixth chapter um you all decide to focus on the deaths of arenas's two most important mentors inside of cuba which any even someone who's seen the Javier Bardem movie um, will recognize these names. Jose Le Lima and Virgilio Piñera. So um, my next question for one of you is, who were these two men? What was their relationship with Arenas like? And how did Arenas write and or speak about their deaths and the aftermaths? Uh, you
3: know, I'm, I, I'm, gonna, <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm gonna, I'll take this once more, but I'm going to be briefer. And then Sandro can jump in. Um, Something that was super interesting to us was besides what you've already mentioned, um, Katie, they were both really, really, really significant mentors to Arenas while living on the island. Um, in Antes que Nochesca, uh, in the introduction, Arenas even praised to Piñera's image, asking for a little bit more time to finish his work before he, he's planning his imminent suicide, right? So um, just thinking about that significance and how Pinera uh, served as like a muse to him. What we do in the book, though, is we look at how in various texts, both essays and and one novel in particular, which was Arenas' last or last most significant novel. Anyways, El color del verano. He also was finishing El asalto at the same time. But um, in that novel, which he was concurrently writing with his autobiography. He represents uh, their deaths. And for us, it was super interesting to see how the evolution of the representation of the deaths changed, or how all the, I'm sorry, the representations evolved over time um, as Arenas was anticipating his own death. And so if you look at different essays again, uh, particularly in a collection of short essays called Necesidad de Libertad. Uh, you'll see how he's complaining. He suspects that the state was involved in killing them both off in some way, shape, or form, like there was some sort of meddling. In Pineda's case, uh, he talks over and over about how he had a supposed heart attack, and you can hear the sarcasm. Um, That same suspicion uh, in the novel, El Color de Verano, becomes much more hilarious. I mean, it's, it's still terrible and tragic, but I'll just say that Pineda is uh, killed off by a painting of a woman's vagina because he was so queer that it was terrifying <laughs> for him to see such a thing that he died on the spot. So it's still the Cuban government. It's still the henchmen coming in to kill him, but the methodology is different. Um, In Lesama Lima's case, he's most upset about the fact that he did not have a state funeral, that he wasn't really recognized as he should have been. He was uh, a few short lines on the back page of the grandma paper, rather than having the send off that he should have had. So in, again, El Color de Verano, we see Arenas having this fantasy about young, handsome men coming out on roller skates, um, skateboards, throwing flowers, uh, queer fairies at the funeral crying, having an all night long kind of a, a spirit, a spiritista or san, san, santeria kind of a ritual commemorating uh, his life and death. So we see perhaps hints into the way that he would like his own afterlife to be um, remembered by the Cuban people.
3: And this is some, may I, imagine I jump in really? Yes, briefly? I'm done. I said yeah. a lot. No, 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 as like, uh, that I want to leave uh, Rafa Space I think what is interesting here is how his pedagogy is so cohesive in that way, always designing his own life despite all this crapola that happens throughout, th- throughout his existence. A horrible existence, a terrible existence, a terrible death in a moment where his disease was not understood uh, in the same way that we do as well, and how life and death which is a constant in Cuba and whoever um, visits Cuba knows that you're constantly how do I live and how do I survive? I think survival mode is something that we Latin Americans understand very well. Uh, the topsy-turvy events in our countries, the economic down, up and down, always up and down. Um, uh, this, this sort of de- we develop this sort of like survival anxiety and we are always fantasizing and creating and improvising in Cuba, you go to Cuba nowadays. You see how people improvise life in the basic necessities. How do I put together a house that is falling apart? How is it, how is it to live in 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 ruins? These historical beautiful mansions, and I mentioned this because. Part of his pedagogy is about this thing that goes back to even, uh, you know, Michel Foucault, which I speak very briefly in the book, and this whole idea of of understanding how power works and how you always have to sort of design your own ways and constantly be destroying these old settled categories and creating new ones to bring yourself briefly outside one particular discourse, because you're always going to be speaking, you know, from a particular discourse, right? And in that sense, I think there is a lot of kinship between uh, what Reynaldo Arenas does in, with the literary craft and what other others have done in, for instance, in philosophy and history, uh, which is not a, a big jump, right? We are right there. Um, and so what I think, it, and I hope it came across in the book, is this idea of how powerful this pedagogy is of designing your own life and how you're going to be looking at life from particular moments and particular times and these various transformations that you necessarily need to do in order to survive. So this is something that I've learned with Reynal Arenas. And now that we are talking about it, this is like, why I should have brought that up more in the book, but oh, well, that's the second for your second book, uh, uh, because Angela is working on the second book on on Arenas. And so it's like, Angie, take that one. (laughs) Thank you. I'll take it
1: so um really kind of um, now that we're at the end um I really wanted to ask you all a little bit about because this is a very a unique project it's not an edited volume it's a text authored by three people so I really would love to hear from I mean you all talked a little bit about it in the beginning but if um, one or two or all of you would like to kind of give a give us a little bit more um context on what it was like to to author this text amongst the three of you.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll take that one. <laughs> what I found very soothing was to have two other authors to experience in a way what Reynaldo must have experienced. Angie Angie mentioned in passing that we were writing this at the peak of um, COVID, and it was a very humbling experience. I remember telling Sandro and Angie that as a queer man who was an adult when um, AIDS was at its peak in the 1980s, I felt that I was revisiting AIDS again. And and actually, um, if I were to write something more about Reynaldo would be his fear of aids um for a for such a brave activist Reynaldo did not in my opinion did not face aids as he had faced other calamities in his life and so so writing this book when when the world was going through such a big turmoil and dealing with a subject that is very sad that life, for the most part, is a very tragic life, um, was a humbling experience. I, I am also much older than Angie and Sandro, so I was contemplating my own um, being old and knowing that I am closer to death than Angie and and Sandra and most of our, um, audience would be. So, um, it was a different kind of writing this book. Um, and it just happened by coincidence. I don't know, maybe, maybe it was Reynaldo. We kept saying that Reynaldo was behind this book. There were so many crazy coincidences that we could point out to almost like Reynaldo was taking care of us, that this book had to be out. And it was was out in spite of the fact that we, all of a sudden, we saw ourselves without our resources. When the pandemic started, I was in San Juan. I'm Puerto Rican. I was in San Juan visiting my family. And six months later, I managed to come back to Alana, where I had all my notes on Reinaldo. So for six months, I was writing out of nothing you know for memory uh, no memory you know it was almost like if Renaldo was back there dictating me um stuff um angie mentioned uh espiritismos um uh, was very much into spiritism so um anyway this is a crazy answer to your question that so many things happened when we were writing this book
2: I think it was a beautiful collaborative experience. I just want to add that for me, it was probably one of the most meaningful experiences of my entire career. And like I said before, I found it just to be a lifeline. Um, I learned so much from my colleagues. Uh, Like you said, Katie, even though, yes, you know, we had different roles on different chapters, all of us had equal editorial privileges. And um, at at the beginning, we went from being worried about adding a comma or, you know, a to like, this part is a mess. Let's move this over here. Um, and it was just a really um, edifying experience. I think that again, back to the mentoring thing, it was a great educational experience, personal experience. Um, I loved it. It was, it was fantastic. And it, it made me really sad when it ended. It was almost oh like God. postpartum depression before when the book right. ended.
3: Right now, talking to, to you guys is like, the memories are coming back. I was like, I miss doing that. It gives me purpose. It made me feel not less alone. I think that literary scholars uh, and, and uh, humanities scholars in general, we have, I come from the humanities. That's my PhD is in the Romance Languages and Literatures. We are very much alone when we, we write. And, and now working in this space of interstitial space between humanities and education, where education is all about collaborative and you know invoking citations as as you the peer pressure of the dead people, right? It's a, it's a different kind of process, a different mm-hmm. space, but. So I had to become used to people massing with my words and massing with texts. And, you know, I write as a second language, you know, writer. And Rafa is much more um, accustomed to English than I am. And, and and Angie, of course, speaks it since she was born or before <laughs> on, the, on the womb. And, and so there's these, uh, of course, all these things like, oh, am I making myself... You know clear and having an audience of three that right it makes it easy you mentioned about this work of making theory digestible that's my dream to be able to do that in my own work in education you know making the the highly complicated theoretical that i think is very important uh digestible to audiences so having the privilege of rafa and angie to read and say what the heck are you saying here (laughs) what do you mean the (laughs) career?" you know it was something very helpful to me and the kind of pedagogy that i wanted to do you know and the kinds of audiences i think that you want to speak because like them i love arenas's literature it teaches me more about history than any history book it teaches me more about education than any educational article I've read in my life and I, and, and, and I don't want it to, 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 to decrease the importance of other kinds of research, but it teaches me more about how to be a teacher than any article on teacher education. And it's just me, teaches me, right? So that kind of authenticity shines through his writing. And it's something that I want one day to be able to do as well and live as pedagogy.
1: Those are all three beautiful answers. Thank you so much. Um, so I usually like to conclude these podcasts um by asking the author, authors in our case, about, you know, what they're what you're currently working on, any projects you have coming down the line. So I'd love to um hear from all of you, you know, if you have any current projects that you'd like to share. Um, we'd love to hear about it.
0: For for me, I am just finished a critical anthology of the short stories and creative nonfiction essays by Judith Ortiz Cofer. Ortiz Cofer was born in Hormigueros, Puerto Rico. And at age two, she came to the United States. Um, She was raised in Patterson, between Patterson, Georgia, Hormigueros, and um, as a teenager in Augusta, Georgia. She comes into the literary history books as the first Latinx writer nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, the same year that Oscar Ijuelos, the Cuban American, won for Mambo Kings. Um, This is a project that will be published by the University Press of um, Georgia. And I'm also finishing a manuscript on Mexican and Argentine cinema of the, mainly the 1940s and 50s, that will be published by the University Press of Florida.
1: So um, Angela and Sandro, um, any projects in the mix you'd like to share?
2: Yes, I'm actually really excited to share two things about Arenas. I um, have almost finished 60 something pages, probably should be about 20, an article about the Antes manuscript, which was concealed, hidden away in the Princeton archives uh, since Arenas' death until very recently and last summer I was able to go examine the manuscripts and see what was omitted what was redacted what was changed um and so that's something that I'm very excited about and I hope to get sent off within the next week or two so keep an eye out for that though I need to shrink it down significantly before I do as it's not quite an article form yet um, and I also forever have been working on a book again about rewriting and narrative I think that that's probably his uh most important modus operandi in terms of uh, one of his um approaches to again rewriting history and rewriting literary uh history as well so i'm very excited about that and i hope to start back on that as soon as i put the finishing touches on my article so thank you katie
1: <laughs> and sandra
3: yeah and i'm getting weird um uh i am actually about to uh go on sabbatical and finish a work on new age movements influence in education and i particularly center in waldorf schools and anthroposophy um you know the anthroposophy is a movement started by rudolf steiner in germany so i'm going to be living in germany uh, beginning next uh, august with my entire family uh and finishing uh this book uh which i hope uh, it's going to be interesting has been a, it's sort of a interesting project that also turning to you never imagine like how new age movements influence entire systems of education like or ideas, education ideas like uh, Waldorf schools and the kinds of literature that 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 is spring from that and particular cultural practices in that sense. And I'm also with a colleague. uh, We are also finishing a special issue uh, on Pedagogies of conspirituality, and conspirituality is this this sort of a melding of conspiracy theories and the spirituality that have become popular during the pandemic, and where these social influencers, by and large, teach people about the real truth and the real history of the pandemic. So I go back to my interest in history and curriculum, and sort of a forms of public pedagogy and sort of try to understand that a little bit more. And um, those in this case are kind of quite harmful for their anti-scientific messages, but in many ways, it rewrites the curriculum of science that we learn in schools. And then you think like, oh, I went to school, I learned about science. How come now I think that, you know, ginger drops are going to cure my my, my cancer, you know, or colloidal silver will resolve all my problems. But judging by the amount of businesses that these alternative practices bring, I think educators stand to gain about the tactics that social media uh, elaborate to draw in audiences. And I can imagine like, wow, can you imagine if we teachers had that kind of uh, ability to make, uh, you know, the literature interesting to everybody, you know, it's just like everybody loves us. What persuasion (laughs) techniques are we using there? So there's something to be learned that I think can be also applicable to mainstream schools. But those are my two uh, uh, projects. And it gets freaky and it's delicious and it's complicated. And I love it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay, well, you them. can see why it's been so exciting to work with these two and why it was so traumatic when it ended. They both have taught me and the world so much.
0: <laughs> well, thank friend. you.
2: <laughs> it's so nice to I mean here so
1: like this has been a really, really fabulous interview. My first interview with with multiple authors. So um, I just want to conclude by saying that this has been the Dissidence of Reynado Arenas, Queering Literature, Politics, and the Activist Curriculum. It is out from the University Press of Florida. You can get it online via their website. And so I just want to conclude now by thanking um, each of you, Sandro, uh, Rafael, and Angela, for, for being with us today. Thank you.
3: thank you you so much and thank you for the university press of florida as well and our uh, wonderful stephanie the editor who believed in us and kind of like shepherded with us this project as well um they've been terrific from the day one and giving kind of all the kinds of support that authors needs to get their work out there so it's a terrific uh, press and and the experience Mm -hmm. has been lovely as well from that end And
1: lots of of great Latin American Cuba books, including one, it sounds like, coming from Rafael Ocasio here with us today. So (laughs) thank thank you you once again to to all three of
3: you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you.